Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 616 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Thursday, March the 3rd, 2011. And uh, today we're going to talk about something that I think we need to talk about. It kind of fits in this week's theme with a little interruption by... uh, the puppy on crack, Gary Vaynerchuk, that we had yesterday, which was, by the way, one of the highlights of uh, of my career, really, to uh, to have him on the air. It was like having uh, whoever you, you kind of look up to in, in your your profession or your business. Uh, that was that was that was who Gary was for me. So it was great having him on yesterday. But you know, we started out the week with a listener feedback show on genetically modified foods. Then on Tuesday, I did a show with you on all the things you needed to know to be able to save your seeds. Now, so you've got seeds, or you've got seeds you've saved, and you need to grow them. Well, to get them growing, you need to start them. And most seeds you're going to do far better with if you start them indoors or start them in a greenhouse or a cold frame uh, or do some other things like that than if you just throw them in the ground. And there's definitely many times throughout the year where you don't really have another choice. It's either too cold or too warm outside. We'll get to that in a bit. But the soil temperature is wrong, and you cannot do it. It just won't work. Or it will take so long for your seeds to start. And we'll get there. We'll, we'll talk about all that today. But my thought was, well, you know how to save your seeds. You know what kind of seeds you need. Well, now you need to know how to grow them. So we're going to do that today. This is hard for me to do today, though. Uh, I'm making a sacrifice for the audience today. I put on Facebook, I'm doing a show tomorrow on seed starting because I love my audience. And, and I do, man. I love my audience deeply. Um, the reason it's hard is you guys know I'm in the middle of my move. So can't really do a lot of seed starting right now. I've got stuff that's really just not ready to fully rock and roll up there yet. Uh, I'm not up there yet enough to be able to water everything and take care of everything. And if I grow very much here, I'm, you know, I'm about three to four weeks, folks, from actually being done with this thing and being out the door. So I am growing a little bit here. I guess I'll leave it, leave it behind for the new homeowners, but I can't really get into this this year. So I'm going to talk about doing something I love while my backyard is all full of beautiful sunshine and squirrels and birds, and I don't get really kind of to do it along with you. And this is the first year I'm not doing it in like all oh, forever. So I'm doing it for you guys today and it, taking one for the team, so to speak. Uh, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping, then we'll get on with this great show, and I think it will be a great show today. Uh, housekeeping item one, as always, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Harvest Eating with Chef Keith Snow. Man, I love Chef Keith. We've had him on the air several times. I'll definitely be bringing him back again, probably next month for another interview, because he teaches you how, like all this great stuff I teach you to grow, and I teach you about in farmer's markets and all this fish and game. He teaches how, how to cook with it and how to cook with it seasonally. Uh, and he's a great guy, and he's on a mission to spread the concept of actually eating real food across America and getting off the Franken food and everything else that goes along with it. So check out Harvest Eating, and you can find him, of course, by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on his banner. You'll find Chef Keith's banner and everybody who's a sponsor's banner in the right-hand margin. Next up today, ready-made resources. Robert over there is a great guy. He always takes care of you guys if there's ever a hiccup. 
Uh, he's done a really great job of taking care of the audience, and I really appreciate him for that. And what I really appreciate additionally is the fact that he's made his company very simple to understand. He's named it what they are and what they do, ready-made resources. All of the resources you need for your prepping, ready-made and ready to go and ready to ship to you. All you got is pick it out, click on it, Put it in your shopping cart, pay for it, and they ship it right to your door. How convenient is that? And what can you get there? Everything for prepping. And I literally mean everything from from very high-end um, solar installations. Uh, well, not really installations, solar equipment. You have to either arrange your own install or do it yourself. But, I mean, full full boat solar array systems, long-term storage food, gardening tools, security items, 12-volt products, you name it, they got it, ready-made resources, check them out. I also want to remind you guys to please get involved with our forum if you haven't already. It's a great resource, a great group of people waiting to, to meet you. All you got to do is go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on forum. You'll find your way there. Register and participate in the discussion. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You get over $100 worth of free ebooks. You get uh, about 20 videos by me that are available nowhere else. And here's the big one you get discounts to over 20. 25 vendors. I had a friend on the phone with me yesterday, fellow business person. He said, well, how do you run your revenue model? I said, it's listener supported. And I was telling him about the members brigade. And he goes, oh, so it's like AAA, except the discounts actually mean something. And I said, you know what, Rob, that's a great way to put it. It's like AAA, except the discounts actually mean something. And uh, that's what I try to do there. The discounts are huge. Uh, you get a free lifetime membership to uh, Safe Castle's Discount Club. That's 29 bucks by itself. Free preferred membership with Western Botanicals. That would cost you 50 bucks a year. The same price as the uh, member support brigade. Those are two of the 25 discounts that are there. Those discounts are not available to the public anywhere else. And with that, we've got the, uh, the housekeeping wrapped up. Let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show, which is again saving seeds. Or not saving seeds, starting seeds. Um, the last time I did this, I talked about how seeds actually germinate in the wild. And even though there's going to be somewhat of a repeat here, um, I'm going to have to do that again. Because if you, I think that the biggest problem that people have when it comes to starting seeds is they don't understand the needs of the seed, how the seed has evolved, and what, what a seed does in absence of humans. And what I mean by that is we try to start our seeds. And we provide this really sheltered, safe environment for our seeds. And we're convinced that, you know, we're doing everything we can to baby our seeds, and sometimes it just doesn't work out. And then we're out there in the garden, and we pull back some of that mulch that was over the winter. And in the mulch, where it should be getting no sunlight, there's a little pepper plant. There's a little tomato plant. It hasn't even broken the mulch yet. You know, and you think there's no way it could get through that heavy mulch. And, folks, those of you that worry a lot about mulching over seeds and stuff... There's a, there's a place to worry about it, especially with like lettuce and things like that. But I want you to think about this. If it can push through dirt, it can push through mulch. Just keep that in mind and uh, keep your layers of mulch thin where you've actually direct sowed and then backfill when the stuff comes up. But don't, don't be paranoid with mulch. But we, we pull that mulch back and there's this pepper. It may sometimes we let a pepper, you know, rot and go into the ground and we pull it back and there's literally a hundred little seedlings of pepper or a hundred little seedlings of tomato there. Or one day we're in our garden, it's the middle of summer by now, and we just hadn't noticed it before, and next thing you know there's a little pepper plant or a little orange plant or a vine of uh, Malabar spinach. There's some 
plant that maybe came from this year's seed, maybe came from wintered over seed, but there it is just growing on its own. We call that a volunteer. And we look at that and we say, how in the heck is it the case that I can take these little seedlings and give them all this tender, loving care, and sometimes I fail? And here are these seeds out here in Mother Nature surviving in this harsh environment. So I'd like to have you reevaluate how harsh Mother Nature really is because when we talk about permaculture, we talk about learning from the true teacher. And the true teacher for the permaculturist when it comes to growing things and productive systems is not Mother Nature herself. It is part of Mother Nature. It is the forest. When we look at a forest and we stand inside the forest, we're actually inside the teacher. And when we look at everything we need to know from growing something as simple as grass to as mighty as an oak tree, the forest teaches us in its layered system. We have what goes on in the deep, dark parts of the forest where the understory has been shaded out and it's open and it's park-like, but yet it's completely canopied in. We have the tangles as we move to the edges, and we have the meadows that exist on the edges of the forest. And in that system, everything we need to know about how to grow things is already happening by itself. No one goes out there with a shovel or a trowel. No one goes out there and turns the soil. No one fertilizes anything, yet the soil is turned and the earth is fertilized and everything works by itself. No one drags out a garden hose, yet the rainfall is sufficient to feed everybody enough water. And the biomass in one small woodlot is so much greater than anything we grow in, in a garden. And you wonder how do these, these plants survive out there and how do they reproduce? One way they do it is with numbers, and this is something you can use to your advantage when you're starting seeds. Seeds are cheap. You're putting lettuce seeds in a pot or a soil cube or whatever, throw three in there. If all three come up, pinch two out. But the way they do it in the wild is, you know, you wonder, where did that, that one pepper plant that made it all the way through, and now it's almost as big as the ones I started indoors, and it grew out here in the cold, and it's volunteered, and it's, it's doing great. How did, it, how did it survive? Well, it might have been one seed out of 500 seeds that fell into your bed. So it was the strongest. And that pepper, that volunteer, especially if you know what variety it is, you should care for that. You should grow it. And you definitely want to save the seed from that pepper or that tomato or that eggplant or whatever it is because it was the hardiest of the hardy. It was naturally selected. But let's talk a little bit about this harsh environment, this evil, harsh environment that is nature, and let's learn how gentle it is, and maybe we'll learn something about how we can start seeds and do a better job of doing it. So a plant's growing at the edge of a forest. This is very much like our garden. It's on the uh, the south side of the forest if we're in the northern hemisphere, so it's getting the sunlight and the warming rays and the exposure that it needs to grow. And it's fall. And the plant has done its duty all season long, and it's tired, and it's ready to go into the recycling bin of life. And its little seed heads or its fruit or its, it, whatever it produces that causes a seed has gone through to fruition and hasn't been taken by a squirrel or a bird or a deer. It's ready to reseed and, and go back to the earth. So the seed head or the fruit falls to the ground. And all around it 
is big litter piles because the trees are dropping their leaves and they're blowing out into the field and all of the other plants in the field are dying because it's time for them to die. They're dropping leaves, some of them are falling over. Animals are walking through the field and they're knocking plants over because now they're dead and they're easier to knock over. And they're trampling into the ground and this seems so harsh. It's moist because it's fall, it's cold because it's fall. <clears throat> and all of this adds up to tell the seed it's not time to grow. And eventually some of the seeds are pushed down into this litter layer on the ground to where they make soil contact. And that soil is very, very cold now because winter's coming. And it's dark down there because it's covered up. And eventually everything freezes over and everything's just frozen and crystallized and snow's laying there. And gee, how could anything be alive underneath that horridly cold snow. But nestled down in there in this harsh environment, quote-unquote, is a little seed. It's now in contact with the soil, it's cold, it's frozen, but it's covered by maybe many, many inches of mulch. It's nicely insulated down there. It might be 7, 8, 20, 50 below above the snow, but underneath the snow it's cozy for a seed at rate about 32 degrees. And that seed just isn't going to germinate at 32 degrees, but it's in a perfect little storage capsule. Now, it's not in a good storage capsule for saving seeds because it's moist under there. So it's not good for 10 years of storage, but that seed only needs to be stored until spring. Now, spring comes, and the sun melts the snow, and the ground begins to warm. And whatever type of seed it is, it's maybe an early seed that comes up early, it will start to kind of kick into, you know, come out of that suspended hibernation when the soil temperature maybe reaches 50 degrees. If it's something that's more of a summer variety and it doesn't want to grow when there's still a potential for a frost of any kind, maybe the soil temperature needs to be 70 or 72 or 74 to get a reasonably quick germination. And what that does is it staggers the seed out so that it grows at the right time. See, it's almost like, it's almost like the planet knows what it's doing if we let it do it by itself. It's almost like nature has intelligence. And at some point when that temperature is right, and remember, ground temperature is cooler than air temperature. So just because it's gotten to 72 degrees, if that plant needs 72 degrees soil temperature, and it's really a summer plant, it's not going to germinate. Or the germination process will be extremely slow. If the soil is 60 degrees, maybe instead of taking a week to germinate, maybe it takes three or four weeks. So the point is the plant doesn't expose its weak parts until the environment is conducive for it. Then as it comes up, this harsh environment is actually surrounded by all of this mulch and leaf litter, and it's protected. And if you go pick that leaf litter up, because people haven't trampled on it, turned it into the ground with a plow or anything, it's actually very, very loose leaf litter. And that means a lot of those little seedlings down there, when they're tender and juicy for the deer or the squirrel or the cutworm or whatever, they're hidden. Some will get found and eaten, but many of them are hidden by that layer of mulch. There's actually a lot of light getting into that, that little pocket down there. It's kind of like a greenhouse. It's filtered. Almost like nature knows what it's doing. And then eventually that plant gets to a point where it feels, not really feels, because we're not going to ex ex extend that level of intelligence to a plant, but where its innate intelligence knows that it's time to put the growth spurt on, and it bursts through that leaf litter. And now it's got some toughness to it. It's ready to go. And then it starts pulling all that light in. Of course, while it was in that little pocket, 
and it looked like it was growing slowly, it was actually growing very rapidly. It was just growing in a way that we as humans have started to ignore. It was growing down and out under the ground and putting down a root system. So now it's got a healthy root system. It's got exposure to the sun. And those leaves are literally solar panels. And those leaves start to take that solar energy in and through the process of photosynthesis, all of a sudden the life really comes into the plant and it starts to grow and produce more leaves. And more leaves are more panels for more energy to bigger root systems. And the bigger that root system gets, the deeper they go, the more drought it can handle and the more leaf litter. And if this has been going on in that field for five years, there's maybe four inches of, of humus at the top of the soil of partially decayed, fully decayed, and brand new leaf litter holding that moisture in like a lake. It's literally a lake. Maybe one inch of water, a thousand acres in size. A one inch deep thousand acre lake that this little seedling's growing in. That's the harsh environment that seeds grow up in in the wild. And we can learn so much from that because we can learn how to recreate that environment. And when we do, we get really good results from our seedlings. So then we have to ask ourselves, if we're going to grow seeds, what are the seeds' needs? And we can look at the natural environment. We can see that one of the seeds' needs is it doesn't, it should not start until a point at which it can survive. So that means that if we're going to start seeds in February, uh, which a lot of you guys probably already have, and we live in the north and we want to put these seeds into the ground in like April, we need to have a place where they can grow and get all their other needs without being outside and frozen to death and killed. So we need a greenhouse or a cold frame or a really sunny window. Or we need to be industrious and we need to have a sunny window that's the best we can do. And we need to realize that maybe we're at a point where it's 50 degrees and warmer all day long, but it freezes at night. We take our little seedlings somewhere out into some filtered shade, maybe under a tree that's still got the leaves missing, where the sunlight comes through but it's not too harsh, and they get good sunlight all day long outside, but before the sun goes down, we have to bring them back in. There's a lot of ways we can adapt to this, but we have to provide the same environment the earth does, but if we want to cheat and start early, we have to protect the seed so that it's in a safe environment because most seedlings either will grow very, very slowly or die if they're exposed to freezing temperatures often. And I can't overstate how important it is to understand that a lot of things like that will survive the frost, their growth will become extremely sluggish. Lettuce, uh, onions, uh, spinach, a lot of the greens that will survive, they just won't thrive. And I can show you a video on YouTube, I've put up many times before, I'll do it again today, where I have some lettuce plants. And it's February here in Texas, and the days are quite warm, but the nights are quite cold, we're still getting frost on the ground, things like that. And uh, all I did was put a fish tank over half the lettuce. And that half of the lettuce grew beautifully. And the other lettuce didn't die, it didn't lose any leaves from frost, but it didn't grow. So we need warmth. No matter what seedling there is, we need warmth. Now, warmth is relative. Warmth for spinach is a soil temperature during germination in the 60s to 70 degree range. But once it's up and established, warmth is 50 to 60 degrees of air temperature, which is colder soil, and it'll do great at that. Warmth for lettuce is just a little bit warmer. Warmth for a pepper we want to stay high 60s and higher just about all the time, 
with our soil temperature. We want to keep our soil temperature below 88. See, and that's why peppers, and you say, well, how does a pepper get that in the wild? Well, they naturally grow in places where the climate's like that. So we have to provide that climate until the pepper's established enough that it can deal with extremes outside of the normal. And I, I bet you didn't know this, a lot of you guys anyway. You know peppers are perennials? If you plant a pepper where it never freezes, you get it well established, it doesn't get too hot, it doesn't get too dry, it doesn't die that way, it will grow for years and years and years and years, like a, like a little bush. Peppers are a perennial, we grow them as an annual because we get freezes in, in North America. If you trim your pepper plants in a pot and put them inside throughout the winter, you can put them back out in spring and they'll grow again. I know some of you know that because I've said it before, but but a lot of you are like, wow, I didn't I didn't know you could do that with a pepper. They're just an annual, no, they're a perennial. So we need the temperature to be right. We need the moisture to be right. The seed needs moisture, and we need light. So we need a protective environment, moisture, heat, and light. Do you notice anything? When we were storing seeds, what was the enemy? Moisture, heat, and light. The cooler, the drier, and darker we could be, the more we would put the seed into suspended animation. So think about it this way. Even if that seed's growing, even if it's surviving, if it's too cold, too dry, or too dark, the seed will either die or not do well or grow. If with the case of temperature, we start as you go lower in temperature, it's just like bees. You hit freezing, they fall over, they look dead. You defrost them, they fly away. With plants that don't die from frost, we just slow down their growth rate. And that's why a lot of times you'll put plants in the ground early, they can survive the frost. And they survive, but they just don't seem to go anywhere. They're not getting enough warmth. So something like a floating row cover or a hoop will get them jump-started for you. It'll also create a greenhouse effect and provide more CO2. You know what CO2 does? It doesn't melt icebergs for polar bears. CO2 makes plants grow. If you increase the CO2 concentration surrounding a plant, its growth rate accelerates. So that's what we need to do. Now, when we do this, we need to put the seeds into something to grow. So when we look at starting seeds where we're not direct sowing, we're not putting them straight into the ground, we need a container of some sort. And the, the four big ones are cubes. We had Clayton Jacobs on to talk about those. Pots. And, and when I say pots, I mean plastic pots. Paper-style pots and peat-style pots. Each of them have some things going for them and some things not going for them. I like cubes the best because they're completely cheap. They're as cheap as it gets because if I have any kind of container, I'm going to put dirt in it anyway. And with a cube, I eliminate the container. So I have this tool. You fill it up with dirt and you press it down and you let it dry out. And then you have your little cube. And then you put your seed in a little dimple in it. You cover it with a little bit of soil. And you mist water the top. If you water it too heavily, it can basically melt your cube apart. They're my favorite method. And... I can't explain why this happens, but in a cube, when the root system gets to the edge of the cube, it just stops growing. It doesn't grow out of the cube. It stays in there, like an innate intelligence thing again. And it just fills the cube. It doesn't grow in circling roots. It just fills the cube with this massive root system. And when you transplant that seedling, you get no root shock whatsoever. The, the area that's available for roots just expands and the roots go right into it. It is the best way to start your seedlings. With plastic pots, the advantage is since they're plastic, you can clean them every year, reuse them, and keep them sanitized. 
Um, since they're plastic, they are really easy to get your, your plants out of. If you're selling plants, it's really an easy way to transport them. Unlike a cube, they're not going to get broken apart real easy or what have you. And um, they do a relatively good job. That said, when you get that big root system in any kind of pot, you pull it out, and you look at those roots are just circling and circling around in there. And that means you to, to get that plant to grow healthy, you have to break those roots up. You don't want, when you buy plants from a nursery, and you got those roots going in circles, if you plant it in the ground without breaking them up, They'll still grow in circles, and you'll never spread out for you. So what you need to do is break that dirt out of there, spread those roots out, and create a nice root crown when you plant it. So that gives a little bit of shock to the plant. It usually gets through it, but it stunts things for a while. So the cube would avoid that. So some genius one day figured out, hey, I can make pots out of paper. So you take newspaper, you take a little form, you make a pot, and you do the same thing. Now when you plant it, you just stick it in the ground, the newspaper rots away, and uh, everything's good. Well, we just had Paul Wheaton on that said he's seen newspaper in very wet ground for long periods of time, not rot away. Um, I want to say something about that episode with Paul right now, for those of you that heard it. Paul basically says don't use the newspaper and mulch approach or cardboard and mulch approach in your gardening because the newspaper has toxins in it because it won't rot and won't go away. I respect Paul's opinion. And I think he's right in certain environments that that can happen. I believe that he saw it happen. I told him on that show, if it was anybody but you, I wouldn't even believe it. So what it was, Paul, I believe it. Does that mean that I'm ready to throw away something that permaculturists have been doing around the world for 15 or more years, documented heavily doing it for, I'd say, actually 25 years, going back into the 70s? Uh, that's worked effectively, that's done everything it's supposed to do, and that thousands of people have done without problems? No. It just means that if I do it again, I'm going to pay attention to what's going on down there, and if that, that, that substrate doesn't begin to rot away, then I'm going to be aware of it. I'm not going to do what that lady did where it was under so much mulch and dirt, it was basically starving a tree. Uh, that was the last interview with Paul Wheaton, if you want to listen to what I'm talking about there. But back to the pots. So the paper thing... What I don't like about it is, yeah, I'm with Paul a little bit on you know the dyes and stuff in the in the paper. I think it's in moderation. It's not that big a deal. But again, I'm still creating circling roots. And if I have circling roots and I put the thing into the ground with the paper on it, then I haven't spread the roots out. So even if the paper rots away eventually, that plant is trapped inside of there for a while. And when it comes out, it's not really as healthy a root system as it could be. So even with a paper pot, the smart thing to do is a razor knife, cut down the side of it, and break it up. So now we're back to the same thing we have with a plastic pot. I'm not saying not to do either one. I'm just saying they, they're not as clean as you might think. And I don't mean from toxicity. I mean from the ease of use. Then the next one is peat pots, the little peat pots you buy in the store. I can tell you for a fact, I've pulled plants out of the ground after a full season that were planted in peat pots, and the peat pot was still largely intact. So if you're using peat pots, I'm not putting them down. I still use them myself for certain things because they're a good tool. Razor knife, cut them off the root ball, and then open your root system up and into the ground. That's why I've become a huge fan of the soil cubes. I don't have to pay for pots. I don't have to mess with pots. I need the dirt anyway. And everything's just clean. Now, there's certain things that I don't just, I have to water a lot more heavily or what have you, and I might decide to use a pot for. But mostly now I use soil cubes and soil cubes only, and uh, they're really a great tool. 
Now, the next thing we need to look at to have success with our seed starting is we need light. And without light, we can't grow anything. And the problem with most most people that have never experienced this before is you don't know what light actually is. Light isn't just the brightness. Light is a series of wavelengths. This is another reason the global warming theorists are, are wrong, by the way. If you got on a whiteboard or a chalkboard, and you drew a line with just little tiny bitty waves and very shallow waves, and then the next line was a little bit bigger waves, and the wavelengths were a little bit shorter, a little bit closer together. So as the waves go up and down, up and down at a higher frequency, they get closer and closer together. There's long and short wavelengths of light. And some wavelengths of light we actually call radio. Did you know that radio were light waves? That's, that's what it is. It's a, it's a certain frequency, a certain spectrum of the light. So some light we can see and some light we can't see. Light is not just the brightness, it's this full spectrum. And there's certain parts of the ultraviolet spectrum that plants have to have, and a light bulb doesn't get it done. A plain old light bulb just doesn't get it done. Uh, the little incandescent light bulbs that everybody's using now, little circly screwy ones, just doesn't get it done. If you want to use artificial lighting to grow your seedlings, you need a full-spectrum UV light designed for growing plants. A window that you think is sunny may not have anywhere near enough sun in it to really give your seedlings what they need. And let me tell you how you always know, absolutely always know, your seedlings aren't getting enough light. You put your little seedlings in the ground, you're all happy or your pots, or your cubes, or whatever. And then a few days later, you see the soil just starting to break. You see that little cute little plant getting ready to come up out of there. And it starts to grow. And those first leaves, the, 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 we call, I call them false leaves. There's a scientific name for them. I don't really care to know um, or try to remember. But those first little leaves are on there. And then it comes up, and the true leaves come out. And you're like, all oh, happy. There's my little seedlings. And that little seedling grows in like a day to like an inch to two inches high. And it's just spindly and skinny. And then the next day it tries to grow like another inch and it falls over. And you're there propping it up with dirt and all. The reason that's happening is no matter how much light you think it's getting, it's not getting enough of the spectrum of light, the wavelengths that it needs to grow. So what does a seed do when it's not getting enough light? What is it genetically programmed to do? Go up. Right? It doesn't matter whether it's covered or not. Generally what that means is it's still in the leaf litter, it's still underground. And if it's, if it's humus surrounding it, if it's compost, if it's earth, if it's even leaf litter, it's got a support system. So it grows through there and even though it's spindly, once it reaches the light, it puts out its leaves and the support system helps it and then the little leaf solar panels send the energy down into the root system and it grows the trunk out and it gets nice and healthy and then it grows on from there. It knows what to do. If it's doing that in your environment, not only does it have nothing to support it, but if, unless you change things, it will never find the light. And the seed, inside the seed, is not just life, there's energy. There's a reserve storage of food. Because a seedling has to grow to a certain size, put out a certain number of leaves to begin photosynthesis before it can begin to create its own energy. So it needs a battery of reserve. And what happens when that spindly seedling comes up that fast? The battery runs out. And if the battery runs out before the plant establishes a root system and a leaf system, it just stops and it will never be saved. 
So if you have spindly seedlings, what you can do is backfill earth around them and get them into good light. And if you do that, you can usually save them. But if you don't do it quickly, there's a point where they've gone too far, the whole growth pattern's screwed, and you're better off just starting over. You lose seven days, but at least you end up, you, you don't lose seven days in the end. Because trying to save a seedling after a certain period of time, um, you would have gained it all back by going back and doing it right. So we've got to have light. So we have to have either we build a tray off our window where we can open the window and we have covering and we can put it out into the sun or we have a greenhouse or we have a cold frame. And I think a greenhouse is really mandatory to be able to do this effectively and do this right. And for some of you, that means you're either going to have to heat your greenhouse with some secondary heating source uh, and that might even be a big steaming pile of compost inside the greenhouse. Active compost can do a lot for that. Or it means that you're going to have to bring your plants in at night. Because most greenhouses, unless you put some kind of secondary heating in them, when the temperature goes below, below freezing at night, when there's no sun for solar gain in there, it's only a matter of time before the temperature equalizes, and you can lose your seedlings even in a greenhouse if there's no heat. The good news is heat could be in a small greenhouse, a couple hundred watt light bulbs. And you just turn those on. Now, they're not going to help your plants grow. You know, but they will, they can keep the temperature in there relatively warm. Now, you don't want them up to the ceiling, right? Because heat goes where? Up. So you want them maybe set lower toward the ground and centrally located. And that can often, inside a greenhouse, when you're talking about mild freezes where the temperature's going maybe 28, 27 degrees outside, can actually keep your plants in your greenhouse alive, especially if you move your more delicate plants near them. It could be a little small ceramic heater. Uh, this is an expensive proposition. If you're in uh, Idaho and you're planning on having stuff in there for uh, for three months like this in freezing temperatures, it's not going to work. You're going to need to come up with something else. You know, you're going to need to do something that's inside, or again, maybe take the seeds in and out. Um, it's up to you, but you've got to provide light, and there's nothing better than the sun for this. Some of the other things you can do that are really effective is to build a hot frame. Especially a cold frame built into the ground with glass over the top of it. With a layer, uh, several inches deep of active compost. And that small area with that active compost, you can start any seedlings you want in there. It'll be plenty warm, but you need to have a way to open that cold frame and keep it open during the day, because the sun will make it way too hot in there. So you need to basically vent that during the day, close it down at night. Gotta have that. You gotta have the, the temperature control. And, um, if you have heat, at the right level, I should say temperature, because it's not really about heat. It's about not too cold, not too hot. Light at the right temperature and moisture, you'll be able to get your seedlings off to a great start. Uh, but just understand that window that's sunny, but only gets the sun for a couple hours a day, it ain't going to cut it. The seedlings are going to grow out toward the window. You see them leaning way over. And then when the sun goes away, they just keep trying. And they keep spending all that energy in that little seed battery until it's gone. And then they fall off and die on you. So if you have spindly seedlings, really tall, really skinny seedlings right now, and you're all proud of yourself, I'm sorry. You need to fix that problem quick before they die off on you. Um, one of the real simple things you can do is build a grow light system. I built one out of a Sterilite bin, uh, three UV spectrum lights I got from Walmart for $9 a piece, uh, some all thread, and a couple nuts and washers, and a piece of scrap plywood. I'll put a link to the video where I did that on YouTube today for you in the show notes as well. And with inside of there, I can start an awful lot of seeds. I think it's something like 48 pots I fit in there last year. And with soil cubes, I could probably do even more. 
I do have to be a little bit careful of setting the, the, the all thread in there and out. But I have a design modification I have planned uh, to do next with that little grow light system that I think will uh, make it easier to take the top on and off where I'm not actually pulling the supports out. So that will be coming uh, this year later on the uh, YouTube channel. But building any kind of a grow light system, you can get an old bookshelf, you know, get an old bookshelf, cheap at a flea market, and mount the heck out of a bunch of uh, grow lights. Again, I get them for nine bucks a piece. And realize this about the grow lights: um, the fixture itself isn't really that important. It's the bulb. It's making sure it's a full UV bulb. So if you get some kind of like super cheap deal on some uh, fluorescent lighting fixtures, all you got to do is if you can find a good deal on the UV bulbs, then then you can put those two together and make that work for yourself. But I mean, you get a four four shelf bookshelf and put, let's say, you know, three or four of those things on each level. You've got a huge seed starting area, and use whatever you want to keep the water contained. Again, Sterilite bins or Rubbermaid bins or what have you, I think, are great for this. And uh, you've got a full rack system you can build for under fifty bucks instead of spending hundreds uh, on on a you know quote unquote professional one. Because the only thing that I'm talking about doing with this today, I'm not talking about growing African violets year round under them. I'm talking about getting your seeds off to a good start to and getting them through the part of the year where you can't put them outside. Because I believe this, and I'll have people argue to, to the cows come home with me on this, but I'll never change my mind due to my results. As soon as it's warm enough in the daytime for your seeds to be outside, even if you have to do the work of taking them out and bringing them back in, get them into the real sun. I don't care how good your grow lights are. The sun's better. You know, God and the universe know what they're doing. They know how to grow plants. We are secondary to them in that capability. So get them out into the sun. With full sun, you can over overwhelm them. To me, the best results I've had are finding places where there's a little bit of filtered shade, and you put your seedlings in that for the first few days, and then you bring them into more sun and more sun, and eventually, within the first week, you actually do have them in full sun. Just don't start there. And once you're able to do that, once you've got enough warmth during the day, let's say it's 50 degrees or warmer outside, and you're in direct sun at 50, that's going to warm up a lot. And you have your seedlings out there for six, seven hours a day in that direct sun, you can bring them in, put them in that windowsill or that shelf or whatever, and uh, you know let whatever light comes through the window come through the window, or let your grow lights do their job, and at night turn them off, just like it's going to be dark outside, and do that every day. You get seedlings really up and rampant running. And you can do that without a greenhouse, You know, if you don't have room for a greenhouse. You will do better with a greenhouse. If nothing else, because you will, you know, after a certain period of time, increase the CO2 concentration inside a greenhouse, especially just by you going in there and breathing. Every time you go in there and stand there and breathe, you're giving your warmth to the greenhouse and you're giving your CO2 to the greenhouse. That's why, you know, Bill Mollison came up with a concept a long time ago. It's been real popular ever since. You build a greenhouse and on the back side of the greenhouse, you build a chicken house. You keep the chickens out of the greenhouse, but you allow the uh, the the airflow between the two to be constant, so you've actually integrated the chicken house into the greenhouse, and uh, the chickens are on their side, but they're breathing CO2, they're creating body heat, and uh, you know they're producing waste that you can move right into your compost pile. They'll keep your greenhouse warm, they'll keep it high in CO2. So if you have that capability, if you're going to have chickens in a greenhouse, combine the two, and that is absolutely dynamite way to run a greenhouse. And uh, that'll actually get you through a lot of those mild frosts where you might have to protect plants. You may not have to protect plants. 
It's amazing how much heat a chicken puts off. And if you have a little flock, let's say half a dozen chickens, man, those guys put off a lot of body heat. A lot more than you would think. Uh, chicken's body temperature is actually quite a bit higher uh, than a human being's. A lot hotter. Uh, so factoid of the day. The uh, average body temperature of a chicken is between 107 to 107.5 degrees. How do you think they incubate those eggs so well? So if you have um, six chickens in this little adjoining chicken house with vents over into the greenhouse, um, you don't just have six little CO2 producers running around there laying eggs for you. You have six little 107 degree heaters running around. So that's a great way to start your seeds. To grow, honestly, to grow plants right through the winter, it's, it's a great combination of things. It's taking functions and stacking them. That's what permaculture is all about. Back to the uh, back to the seeds, though. Uh, there's a couple different ways to water your seedlings, and the one that I found that works best is you get a little mister bottle and you mist water them. And the the only issue with that is that it requires you to water them quite frequently. Uh, several times a day often, especially when you have them out in the sun, uh, you, you know, and they, even when it's 50 degrees, 45 degrees, you know, uh, when direct sun, man, they can, they can dry things out relatively quickly. So what the other option is, and I'm, I'm moving away from this and I'm just accepting that, you know, they need to be misted and it's watering from the bottom. And that's where you take something like a, any kind of a bin, uh, that, that will hold water and you have your pots in there. And then you water the, the, the bottom that you fill the bin up with maybe an eighth of an inch or a quarter inch of water. And then the, the soil and the pots wick up the water as they need it. And that works really well. The problem is if you let it get too wet for too long, you start to get mold and fungal problems. And, uh, no seedling likes its roots really saturated in water. If you think about aquaponics even, uh, aquaponics doesn't mean that the water's constantly there. The water's down with the fish, it gets pumped up, and then it flushes through the grow bed every, you know, maybe 15, 18 minutes. So the gravel stays moist but not wet. So it's really easy to be too wet. And then with soil cubes, it's just not an option. You can't sit soil cubes in water. Uh, eventually they'll just fall apart on you. So misting or a very, very gentle uh, type of watering can, and I really haven't found a, any watering can with small enough holes that works well. The best thing I've found is you get a nice mister bottle, uh, you can get them at hardware stores, box stores, anywhere, and you set it on that spray, and you don't spray the seedling, you put the nozzle down, spray the soil. Spray the soil till it's nice and wet, till it actually builds up a little layer of moisture, and then watch the moisture go into the soil. If the puddle remains, it's too wet. If um, if you spray it and it, it goes in and it looks dry on the surface, it's not wet enough. And you just do this for a while and you'll you'll kind of get this thing figured out. The next thing I want to talk about is culling. I said one of the things that nature does that we tend not to do is nature's generous. Nature's not greedy. When, when, a, when a lettuce plant goes up and makes some seed, it doesn't make one seed. It makes thousands of seed, and they fall everywhere, and birds eat some, and some blow away, and some land on top of a rock, and the sun bakes them into oblivion, and some of them end up in the soil, and when they start to grow, grubs eat some, and slugs eat some, and deer eat some, and squirrels like little green shoots too, by the way, and they eat some, and some birds eat the little green shoots, and mice eat them, but there's so many that some of them make it. So we create this very predator-protected environment. You don't have a lot of squirrels, hopefully, coming in and nipping off your green shoots on your sunny windowsill. So we think, oh, I'll just put one little lettuce seed in there. Man, throw three or four of them in there. 
And when they all come up, look at the one that looks the healthiest. Now, don't try to put them all in one spot. You know, you've got some space. And if, I'm talking even an eighth of an inch apart or a quarter inch apart from each other. So even a little dimple in a soil cube. With lettuce seeds, you can kind of put one at each, at, at each extreme edge of the circle and fill that in. So if two don't come up, you don't care. If all four come up, we don't care. When they do come up, we look at them and go, that one's the healthiest. And then we don't pull them out. We get a little pair of shears or scissors or something like that or our fingernails and we go in there and we basically just cut off the three or the one or the two that we don't want. And we start our natural selection process, or maybe our unnatural selection process is about it, uh, our culling process. If we're going to save seeds. We want the healthiest, strongest plant. We begin that at the seedling level. Which seedlings sprout? You know, the other thing we might look at is, okay, they all kind of look about the same level of health. This one's a little bit bigger. Well, the one that's bigger, it sprouted first. And in fact, if one sprouts really, really fast and it's doing really, really well, as soon as the other ones come up, kill them. Because now you, when you save the seed from that plant, you've got a very quick germinating uh, sequence of genes. You know, if it germinates in two days and it's supposed to take five, and you keep doing that generation after generation, eventually you'll produce a lettuce that's like lightning fast germination speed. There's a lot of advantages there, as long as the rest of that plant is healthy. But use use large numbers. And I want to talk about culling versus something called pricking out. Culling is actually killing off the competition. Pricking out is a method of starting a lot of seedlings really, really fast and then separating them. And only certain plants do well with this. Two are tomatoes and peppers. I don't do this. But you certainly can, and it does work well. My grandfather used to do it. You take a little bitty tray, and you just seed it with set, with uh, pepper seed, for instance, almost like you're seeding grass, and you just sprinkle soil over it. And when they all come up, when they're all, when they just get their first true leaves, that first set of true leaves, you've got like just like a little, looks like a little sprout. Like if you've ever done sprouting, you know, for eating sprouts, it looks like a little sprout tray, and you just very gently with a toothpick or a tool prick out each seedling, and then plant them off individually. My grandfather used to do that with peppers because he said the damn seeds are too small. Can't see them anymore. So he'd just throw them in a tray and do that. And it amazed me that he couldn't plant individual seeds, but he could prick out these individual pepper plants. And most of them made it. But he planted so many it didn't even matter. You know, if you lost half of them, who cared? And you can do that if you want to. But when you hear somebody talk about pricking out, that is different than culling. Those are two different processes. I just wanted you to know that. Um, I also want to talk a little bit about, there are plants that they say you should always direct sow. And direct sow means we go out in the garden and plant them in the garden. And sometimes I agree and sometimes I don't agree. I think any plant can be started in a pot or a soil cube, indoors in a greenhouse. Not every plant should be, but every plant can be. And situationally, things change. For instance, when I had Clayton on, I was talking about what I did with his soil cube that he sent me. I had this one bed that apparently was lousy with something called a cutworm. And there's only one thing I despise more than a cutworm, and that's a squash vine borer. Cutworm is an evil little demon that lives in the soil. And it doesn't even like to eat your other plants. It only likes sprouts. It likes when the plant first comes up, and these little demons just eat right around the bottom. And basically, it looks like somebody took a razor blade and cut your plants off. They don't eat the whole plant. They eat the stem right where it meets the ground and cut it. That's why they call them a cutworm. So I planted these scarlet uh, emperor beans. 
And they came up beautifully, and then the next day they were all, there was only like 10 of them I put in there, just one little uh, trellis area with 10 bean plants, and they were all dead. And they were all cut, you know, just again, just like somebody came out with snips or a razor blade and cut them all off to the ground. So I sat and I looked at that and I said, now Jack, you're not supposed to uh, start beans in a pot, but if you do this again, you know what's going to happen. Those little worms are going to come back out and kill them again. So you have to be smarter than the worm. You don't do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. We call that insanity. So I took some soil cubes and I started some bean plants and I got them up to where they were about two inches tall and they had a nice thick stalk. And then I planted them into the ground and I had great results with my Scarlet Emperor beans after that. And the cutworms weren't interested in them at that point. So that's just one example of where, and especially with a soil cube, beans... Uh, they don't like to have the root systems messed with once they're established. So one of the big reasons that you uh, that you don't direct you don't put beans into a pot and start them is because you have to mess with the roots. Well, soil cube eliminated my need of messing with the roots. I also inoculated them, and then to do the Scarlet Emperor beans are huge; they're like a lima bean in size. So once I made Clayton soil cubes, they have this little dimple for putting your seeds in. I actually had to get like a stick, or I think I used like a, a sharpened chopstick is what I used, or a bamboo skewer, and I kind of wallowed out that hole, and I made it bigger and deeper so I could fit that freaking seed in there because it was so big. But it worked beautifully. Um, another instance I could think of is one thing you would never hear anybody starting in a pot and then transplanting out in the field would be corn. I mean, think about 50 corn plants. It's kind of a pain in the butt, and corn just usually does great in the ground. But if you live somewhere with a short growing season, and you have a nice greenhouse that's either heated by chickens or a heater or heat from the house or a rocket mass heater or whatever you're using to heat your greenhouse, um, you could easily get two to three weeks of growth on corn with soil cubes. And if you wanted to make 50 or 100 soil cubes and do it, there's no reason you can't. It doesn't cost you anything but time. Some things, though, just I can't see working well for you um, unless they're planted out really, really quick. And again, now we're back to only a soil cube working. And these are root crops. Beets, parsnips, carrots. Um, the problem with any kind of pot is that, that root, the tap root starts to go down really, really fast. And as soon as it encounters like a hard pack, something where it can't break through, um, it just kind of starts to deform the overall root, and then you just don't get a healthy root structure. But I could see, like, I, it, I've i wanted to grow beets. And sometimes, even in the spring, the soil gets too warm and they don't want to germinate uh, out in the heat. So you could germinate them in a soil cube, and as soon as they start to grow, as soon as they have maybe three or four leaves, out into the garden they grow. That's, again, something you can't really do with anything but a soil cube. Do you see why I've become such a big fan of, uh, of soil cubes? And there's a lot of tools that do this. I, I really like Clayton's. It makes two of them. You can buy great big industrial ones that make like 10 or 20 at a time. Um, but do try to support Clayton if you're going to think about using soil cubes because he supports the show. And he offers a discount on the soil cube to the uh, to the MSB as, as well. Um, I also want to talk about hardening off. What is You hear this all the time. Harden them off. Well, hardening has to do with temperature and sun, both of them, and both of them in a different way. Um, in, the, in a cooler part of the year, even if it's a plant that, that can handle getting down into temperatures, let's say in the 40s, it, it may shock it. If you've had it inside with grow lights or in this beautiful greenhouse and it's been this nice constant 60-ish, 70-ish degree temperature and all of a sudden it finds itself fending for itself in the middle of a garden and that night the temperature goes down to 38 degrees. It's too much too fast. 
It's like when you bring a new fish home from the fish store to put in your tank, your aquarium, and they tell you to take the bag and float the bag in your tank for a while so the two temperatures slowly equalize, and then we open the bag up, we put a little bit of aquarium water in there, and we and he stays in his own water, and it starts, and you tie the bag back up and leave him in there a little longer, and then you open the bag and dump the fish in. So he doesn't go to a very different chemical environment, he doesn't go to a very different temperature environment too quickly. Yeah, the environment's fine. All the other fish are swimming around, looking at the other fish in the bag, going, dude, come on out. He's like, dude, I can't get through the bag. Right? But if we just take that fish, cut the bag open, and dump him in, sometimes he swims around, and he's fine. He's like, cool, I'm in a new place. Sometimes he swims around, he gets a little bit out of kilter, but eventually he comes back. And sometimes he swims around a little bit, flips upside down, and dies. Because the swing was too much. So seeds take a little, or seedlings take a little bit longer to harden off than a fish. What hardening off would be if we've been keeping the plant inside only, or in the greenhouse only, is putting it outside, you know, for a, a few hours a day when it's a cooler temperature or a warmer temperature or a more direct sun, right? Because in the greenhouse we have this filtered sunlight. It's beautifully 78% of it comes through and it's this perfect little, you know, ecosystem. But the real world's not like that. And the seedling hasn't grown in the real world. It doesn't know what to do with it. It hasn't adapted to it. So we need to take and put it out into direct sun for a little bit of time and then protect it again. And then put it out a little bit longer and protect it. And do that process for about two to three days. And you'll have the best results with your transplants. Now am I saying you can't just sometimes go grab a plant out of the greenhouse, throw it on the ground, and it'll grow just fine? No, because I've done it when I don't have time to mess with it. And most times it works. But it depends on the time of year. If you've started some plants that are really a fall plant, and you're putting them in the ground in August, in that intense sunlight, but you need to get the plant established so that by the time the first cool weather of September comes, it's up and ready to go. Let's say you're, you're sowing um, lettuce or arugula or something like that or spinach and you, you want to get it in the ground and going, if you put that from that sheltered environment and straight in the sun, it'll scorch, it'll burn, it'll die. You need to provide it some level of protection. Now, there's natural things we can do. Let's say we've got that spinach, and it's for our fall spinach crop. We want to put it out mid-August when it's little. Well, maybe we still have tomatoes doing really well. And we know the first frost is going to kill them deader than a hornet hit with a spray can, Right? So what we do is we take our, our, our spinach, a little tiny spinach plant, and we put it in the ground shaded by the tomato. And we say, well, it's not going to really thrive there. Well, it's going to do just fine. It's going to get its root system established. It's going to grow nice and sluggishly, but it's going to be protected and get through those couple weeks and establish itself. And then that first September frost comes in if we live up north. Bam, there's the tomato dead. Well, as soon as it's dead, we pull it out of the way. We let the sun shine in on that, 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 uh, that, that spinach plant. We can do this kind of successive planting in many ways. Maybe it's not frost that's taking it. We can put something in the shade of corn. Corn that we're about to harvest. And once we harvest the corn, we're going to cut it back and we're going to plant something else. So we can use the shade of the corn to harden off if we plan our planting intervals. These are just things to think about. It's not like you have to do it exactly this way. You just need to understand the seed's needs and understand that if I put this thing into too quick of a change... It's going to harm it, so how do I mitigate the change? How do I make the change uh, a, a, a slow, gradual change versus a harsh, abrupt change? Um, 
I also want to talk a little bit about potting up today, but not too much because with a soil cube, you don't have to worry about it. But potting up might be if you need to keep seedlings in a greenhouse or in a grow light system for longer uh, than you'd normally planned and you had started them in a very small pot and they've kind of just filled it with roots and they need more space to keep growing, you move them from one small pot to a little bit larger pot. And uh, again, I don't do it a lot, but when you're if you're following instructions for doing something, and you see pot them, pot pot them up, or you know pot up on the third week or whatever, that's all it means. That's all it means is to to take it out of its small container and put it into a larger container. Um, I also want to really kind of reinforce: please don't put these things in the ground until you know that it's safe to put them into the ground. A lot of stuff like peppers and tomatoes um, that's really frost sensitive, you put it in the ground, you think it's not going to freeze. Now freeze is coming. You go out there and cover it. You uncover it the next day. It's dead anyway. I'm not saying not to cover it. I'm not saying not to try But if it gets cold enough, you can cover it with whatever you want. It's going to die. Now, there are some things you can do. You can, uh, If you cover it with poly... And you put some kind of heat source under there, you can get it through that that one late frost you didn't plan on. But the best rule of thumb for anything that's killed by frost is go to Farmer's Almanac or any of the other sources out there you can and find your last average frost date and put your frost-sensitive plants into the ground two weeks after your last average frost date. And if you want to cheat and do it before have some means of die-hard level protection. So I'm talking poly, I'm talking secondary heat sources, I'm not just talking floating row covers, I'm not just talking those a blanket with some props and things like that, I'm talking about a real legitimate level of pr- protection. Because all of those things that people do, um, the gentle protection, let's call it, will work when the temperature is going to go to really like, it's really 34 but the low-lying areas hit 31 and you get frost on the grass, they'll work great, great for that. They'll retain enough heat, you know, especially if you go cover your plants, let's say, while there's still an hour of sunlight left and it builds up some thermal mass under there, it'll get it through that. But when you get that late-season unexpected frost and it goes down to 20 degrees, which happens, it happened here one year and kicked my ass, just flat-out kicked my ass, Killed all my tomatoes I had in the ground, uh, even with excessive covering. When it goes to 20 degrees, plants like tomatoes are dead. And you can cover them all you want, but whatever you're covering them better be retaining a heat source that keeps them up above freezing. Because the tissue in those plants simply cannot handle going down to freezing temperatures. It causes cell rupture, and once the cells rupture, think about your cells rupturing. How well would you do if every cell in your body ruptured right now? You turn into a gelatinous mass, fall off your skeleton, and be dead. Not far off what happens to a tomato when it gets frosted uh, beyond its capability to survive. And then the biggest thing, and the biggest mistake I see made by people with their home gardens is a lack of mulch. Mulch is your friend. Okay, Flat out, mulch is your friend. You need a big, thick layer of mulch around your seedlings. That is going to be, first of all, Back to my original story about the seed that fell in the meadow. That's what the meadow is like. The meadow is mulch. It's living mulch, it's dying mulch, and it's dead mulch. It's multiple layers of mulch. 
And if you go out in the middle of a meadow that hasn't been, you know, mowed every two weeks throughout the summer or trampled to death by cattle or anything, just a natural field, and you go out in the middle of that field and you think that dirt would be hard-packed like the dirt in your backyard, and you start pulling back the sticks and things and digging down there, you'll find rich black soil. It might only be an eighth of an inch thick. It might be two feet thick. Who knows? But you'll find a layer of rich, fertile soil, and it'll be moist in even some of the driest parts of the year. You need to recreate that. When you first put that new seedling into the ground, even if you did everything right, and that seedling is just rocking and rolling and it's healthy and it's, you know, it's not even that, it's like small as far as its height, but it's stout. It's stocky. It's a bit like a Ukrainian. It's a bit like me. It's exactly what you want it to be. So now as it grows tall, it can stay stout and it has a firm structure. And man, it just looks beautiful and the leaves are bright green. And everything is beautiful. And man, you are so happy you put that seedling in the ground. You need to understand that if you, soil cube, pot, whatever, that little thing that's area that's smaller than your fist that makes up the root system on that plant for the first uh, few days until it starts to spread out, that, that little area needs moisture. And the ground around it can literally be saturated. But if, if the area where the roots can actually access is dry or infertile, the plant will suffer. And the only way, especially if you're in the south, where the ground dries out quickly, to keep that moisture there and to fight off evaporation and that evaporative loss is mulch. So if you're not mulching your vegetable gardens, you are wrong. And, you know, I want you to think about how seldom I tell you something like that. I'll, I'll tell you about my particular choice of a carry gun. I don't tell you if you don't carry that, you're not, you're wrong. I would never do that. I think it's nonsense to tell you something like that. I'll tell you about my opinion of a particular cartridge for deer hunting. I don't say, well, if you don't use a 306, you're wrong. You know, I'll tell you about my particular political view. You know, I'll say, this is how I feel. And I'll say, whatever you think, you do. But when it comes to growing vegetables in a garden, especially in the South, if you're not mulching, you're wrong. And you just are. And you look at the big farmer's field where there's no mulch, it's impossible for them to effectively mulch it. Trust me, if they could, they would. You know, that's why monoculture sucks. Honestly. That's why monoculture destroys cropland. Because not enough organic matter gets in the soil. Mulch is everything. Those of you who are paranoid to use wood mulches, there's certain wood mulches you shouldn't use, especially if you're trying to try to grow legumes. Legumes are the most susceptible plant, and that's beans, peas, things like that, to any kind of a herbicide. So you don't want to use any kind of a, a bark or wood mulch from any kind of a tree uh, that, that has a... Uh, we call an allopathic effect. And that's basically some trees put off a chemical. It's basically an herbicide. So that they can kill the competition off and grow faster. Black walnut's one of them. A lot of the pines and spruce have a little bit of an allopathic effect and somewhat of an acidic effect. So spruce, pine, especially pine needles. Pine is more the needles than the wood that has this allopathic effect. And that's what they do. They drop those needles. They form that big bed of needles. doesn't hurt them, and it kills off the competition. You get these huge stands of pines that are nothing but pines. So you don't want to use any kind of an allopathic uh, of wood mulch. But I don't have a problem with wood mulches. And um, But I will tell you this. If you're trying to grow beans, and everything else in your garden seems to be doing well, and beans won't grow well, and you're using a wood mulch, odds are that something in that mulch is allopathic and is herbicidal 
and it's herbicidal enough to hurt your legumes, uh, but not all the rest of the things that you're growing. Sometimes we have a tendency as gardeners to think everything I'm doing is right because everything's working, but we don't know if it could be working better. And your legumes are the canary in the coal mine. They're the first ones to start telling you, something's not right here. And there's a lot of things that could, unfortunately, if you switch mulches and you still have this problem with your legumes, it's probably your compost, if you're getting commercially produced compost. You think about the fact that today, um, when a farmer grows corn, he puts Roundup Ready corn in and sprays it with, uh, with Roundup. And then you think about the fact that, um, that when a farmer grows soy, uh, he does actually with corn it's atrazine and with uh, soy it's Roundup. So these, these, these feed crops, are heavily saturated with an herbicide. And, uh, you know, now we're going to have Roundup Ready alfalfa. So we have all the uh, waste from those that get composted, and then the cows eat the feed, and then they crap out what they crap out, and then we compost the cow manure, and some traces of the uh, of this, this these, these herbicides remain in the commercially available compost today. People go to composting facilities. Uh, a lot of cities have composting facilities, and a lot of them are using sewage in their composting, and that's not necessarily bad. But that sewage is not just the stuff that we make and flush down a toilet. It's a lot of the drainage water as well. It's a lot of runoff and things like that to get in there. Well, we've got all these herbicides being sprayed everywhere, and you know, does this is this going to you know what does what's in there? We don't really know. Because a lot of these herbicides don't break down. So if you have a new compost source and you're not sure whether to use it or not, what you do is you set up a little bucket and you, you mix in the compost with some potting soil and plant yourself some, some beans, any kind of bean, green bean, you know, pole bean, whatever, in that little, little bucket. And then take some of the compost and make some compost tea with it. Uh, which is you just soak a bag of compost in some water. Use that water to water your beans. If it kills them or they don't grow, don't use that compost. Because that means that compost is infected with an herbicide. So I found like a huge composting facility up in Arkansas, up in Hot Springs. The city of Hot Springs has a composting facility. It's either a great resource or a source of toxic uh, herbicide. And the only way to find that out would be to have it tested or to do your own simple little test. So I don't know whether I'll be able to use it or not. I'm going to check it out. Uh, I may send it off for an analysis just to see what's in there. But I want you to be careful with your commercially prepared herbicides. And I want you to always remember as, 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 as gardeners that when you start to see you can't grow a bean, something's wrong. Beans are actually one of the easiest vegetables to grow. And when everything else is working and the beans aren't, it's probably, it's not, there's diseases bean gets, there's diseases called rust and things like that. But even with that, it's, these diseases generally attack a plant when it's weakened by something. So really be hypersensitive with where you get your compost and your and there's you know a potential for this to be uh, causing problems with your mulch as well. I know Marjorie had the same problem with uh, some some I think old hay that she or hay or straw that she had got from mulch. She put it in her DVD backyard food production. Um, the backyard food production DVD, by the way, now if you haven't gotten a copy yet, is now available in the Survival Podcast Gear Shop. Um, but she had, she put the, this in her DVD where, you know, you might get some straw mulch or something like that that may have been hit with an herbicide and you don't know. And what she simply did is the same thing I was talking about. She planted a little pot of beans and you take the straw and you soak it in water. And you use the water 
that's been soaking in the straw is a way to, and you keep doing that for a number of days, so you let your beans come up, and they're already starting to grow, and then you start watering them with this, this water soaked, uh, this straw soaked water. And if there's any herbicidal traces on, on that straw at all, it'll kill those beans off or start to make them sick. And then you know not to use that straw, or not to use that hay, or anything else that you get that you would use as a mulch. Legumes, again, canary in the coal mine, wanted to throw that in at the end for you. But hopefully you know now more about starting seeds than you did before this episode. If you heard the one I did last year, there was a lot of similarities in it, because the way you do it hasn't changed, but there's new people here all the time, and I think we need to be reinforced with this, and hopefully I brought some new information to you, because I've learned how to do this better in the last year myself. So occasionally I will redo a topic completely, uh, but hopefully I'm always bringing more to the table, because as I learn, I try to pass on what I've learned to you. Uh, but get out there, get those seeds started. And I want to say one last thing today. In spite of the whole show being about seeds, if you're a new gardener or if your seeds don't work out for you, do not be ashamed to go down to your local nursery and buy well-started seedlings and put them in the ground. And every year, no matter how many plants I start, I, I do buy some from my local nursery. It supports local business. It uh, it extends me out into the community. Uh, it makes new contacts with me. I always meet interesting people buying seedlings when I'm there. I always try to, when if somebody's not, you know, got questions and they're, they're concerned about something, I'll talk to them, well, I've grown that before, and I try to kind of reach out that way. If I'm in a box store or something like that where the people helping don't really know what they're talking about, you know, I'll kind of step in when I hear them giving somebody bad advice as gently as I can and say, that's not exactly true. Here's what you do to get that to grow in this area or what have you. Um, but it's a good thing to reach out into our communities too. So don't be afraid to buy seedlings. and uh, But do try your hand at starting seeds. And what I think you'll find is everything I told you is true, but it's also situational. And you'll find that maybe starting seeds in Pennsylvania is going to be different than starting seeds in Texas. I can tell you for a fact that's the case. They're very different climates. And they're very different soil types. And they're very different environments. So it's going to differ. And if you start this year, you'll learn and you'll do better next year. And eventually you'll end up with a system that takes all the things I talked about into account, but it's customized for you and your needs and how often you're around, how often you can water, how often you can move them, what resources you have available. But it's got to start somewhere, and that starts with you. And remember, this is one of the key things of the revolution. If you can grow your own food, if you can provide even 10% of what your family eats every year, you have 10% more liberty. And if you can do 10% this year, you can do 15% next year. And every step we take toward greater liberty and independence takes us a little bit closer to living the life we really want. Today, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Nobody up there cares. They're living 